Some sermons are really close and connected to one's own personal life and experiences. Others maybe are further away from our own experience, both as the one who might be giving the sermon and the people who are listening to it and and taking it in. As we talk today about suffering for doing good, being persecuted for righteousness, there may be those among us who feel this very closely in your lives, and there may be others for whom you would say, I haven't suffered very much in my life. So we're here together in this different kind of space where we have a different experience with this text that is so, um, so powerful and, and, and full of content and richness, and yet we have different experiences as we relate to it. So let's open our minds and our hearts, regardless of our position, our understanding, our experience, and be open as this whole service has been leading us to this moment to what the Spirit has to say to us. So just take a quiet moment and let's position our hearts receptively before God and His Word. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Amen. In his book on the Beatitudes, author Mark Scandretti tells the story of a time when he and his wife were out for a walk one evening. It happened to be in Wichita, Kansas. That's just where the story is, to give some truth to it, some measure of, of, uh, of authenticity. And they were about to cross the street. The walk signal came on and they headed out across the street to the other side. And then all of a sudden, this car that was waiting there, it was a vintage muscle car, lurched forward and stopped just in front of them. They were startled, surprised, frightened, turned and looked looked to the car. And there was the driver laughing and pointing at them. He did it just to frighten them. Well, understandably shaken and upset, Scandretti says that certain choice words went through his mind at that very moment when he realized that the driver did that just to get a thrill out of frightening them. He reacted. His first reaction in the moment was to lash out. Even though it wasn't said, it happened in his mind and heart. When I read that story, it reminded me of a story that I think I told you maybe about a year ago one day when I happened to be on my bike cycling, my pedal bike. I don't have one of these bikes, sadly. I know some of you do, and I'm sure you would never do this, but as I was riding down the road on my way to Agassiz, about 10 motorcycles went past me, and the last one swerved right over beside me and gunned it and then headed down the road. And I was scared, really. I was very frightened in in that moment when that happened. And like Scandretti, a few choice words went through my mind in that moment. 
So, what happens to you when you're mistreated? When something mean is done to you, something unjust happens to you? How do, how do you react? What's your typical response? This is where you're going to talk to each other for 60 seconds. I want you to tell either the person you came with or somebody sitting beside you, or if you really don't want to, just think it in your mind. Tell them how you typically respond in situations like I've just described, where something mean or inappropriate happens to you. Are you passive or aggressive? Do you react on the inside or on the outside? It's a little personality test. Just talk to one another for 60 seconds. Go. Well, if you're not finished your conversation, now you have something to talk about over the dinner table today. The natural response for most of us, in one way or another, when something mean or unjust happens, is to retaliate. We react, we respond in kind. Often, in the human, natural, fleshly sense, we seek vengeance, whether internal or external, whether we actually play it out in real life or only in our minds. External reactions like this, external retaliation, almost always leads to escalation. It gets worse and worse. Internally, it may not lead to a visible escalation, but it certainly leads to distance between people when we seek that kind of response. It happens on the sports field all the time, doesn't it? I've been watching football games this summer. I'm a diehard CFL fan. I only get TSN for six months when the CFL season is on, so I can watch my... I grew up in Saskatchewan, so you know I'm part of Rider Nation. Uh, I heard that. I heard some retaliatory remarks coming. Well, I've been watching my team, and uh, they've been having some troubles this year with penalties retaliatory penalties. You see, somebody else will do a play, maybe it's a great play, or maybe it will be sort of on the sly, a little dig or a little poke, or maybe a word that was said that nobody hears, and then a reaction is given. And then that's when the flag is thrown. That's when the penalty is given. Coaches go crazy over this kind of stuff. They want their players to have discipline, to not retaliate in those situations. But it's hard when that's a heated moment and something happens, the natural reaction is to retaliate, certainly on the sports field. Not everybody. And coaches try to pull this back, pull it back so that they don't get penalized and, and then potentially lose the game for a bad penalty. Well, beyond the sports arena, in this world, people are indeed unkind to each other. It happens on the macro level, as Ruth prayed, and on the micro level, too. People do get mistreated. Wrongs are done by humans 
to other humans, sometimes in horrific ways. We have a vision statement for our church, and this is what it says. To form a flourishing community in which an increasing number of people engage with each other and the world in allegiance to Jesus. To form a flourishing community. Flourishing happens when humans are growing and becoming fully alive, interacting with one another in rich and, and robust kinds of ways. But when people are mistreated, that breaks off the possibility for flourishing. Mistreatment causes the opposite of flourishing to happen. It creates distance and animosity. Today's beatitude says that we're blessed when we're persecuted for doing good. When you stop and think about it for a moment, it, it causes us to ask this question. Well, what then is the proper response when mistreated? How should we respond to mistreatment in light of this beatitude? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. In the face of mistreatment, is it even possible to develop flourishing communities? To become flourishing and fully alive humans? I submit to you that it is possible and it hinges on how we respond in those moments. But as we look carefully at this beatitude, this eighth beatitude, it reads, blessed are those who are not just persecuted, but persecuted for righteousness. So far we've just been talking about mistreatment in general and certainly this beatitude covers that off, but it gets more specific. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing good, for choosing to do the right thing, for standing up for righteousness, if you will. What do we, or how do we respond when we're persecuted for doing good? Now, in that motorcycle buzz story, as I like to refer to it in my own folklore, my personal folklore, if you will, I wasn't necessarily mistreated for doing something good. I mean, it wasn't right what happened. Unless you take riding or cycling as a, as a deliberate choice to make an environmentally conscious choice to, to, to use your body to, to not put CO2 into the back or carbon monoxide back into, uh, into the air. You could consider cycling to be doing something good. In fact, I've heard people who cycle who not on rare occasions have some sort of loud vehicle gun it close to them, just making a statement to why would you be on your bike when you could be in my big truck. Maybe they're doing good and maybe there's a little bit of mistreatment, but I think I'm pushing it, stretching it just a little bit with that kind of an illustration. Yeah, I see a few nods there. But I have another story, okay? I gotta go back in my memory bank, so quite a, quite a while for this. In our mid-20s, Sandy and I felt the call of the Lord to move to Nova Scotia and we were gonna help out in a, in a, in a smaller church in the city of Dartmouth. So I just finished university and, uh, and we packed up this truck that my dad bought for us. It's not that truck, but 
but that's exactly like it. It was a 1976 Ford Super Cab. It was even that yellow tone. Ours had a canopy on the back, so we could put all of our worldly belongings in the back of this truck. We'd only been married for three years, so we hadn't accumulated that much stuff. It would take a lot more than the back of a Ford Super Cab to move all that stuff that we've accumulated now. But in 1987, when this move happened, that's, it all fit in there. We made it fit. So all those worldly belongings were put in that truck, and we drove across the country thanks to my dad's generosity in the 1976 Ford Super Cab. Did I tell you it was a bright yellow? It's really nice, yeah. The intent was never to keep this truck. I mean, it was a gas-guzzling pig, shall we say. But it did the job well as we drove across the country. We were going to sell it as soon as we got there, and my dad's gift continued to... Uh, pay dividends as we would use the proceeds of that big truck to buy a smaller car that would be more economical for us to drive when we got out there. So we put it up for sale, tried to sell it um, privately, and had somebody, uh, we were in negotiations with someone who was going to buy this truck. We were getting down to negotiating the price, made the deal, and then he asked me a question. On the bill of sale, would you mind putting the, the price down to about $1,000. I think we were going to sell it for just over $2,000. You see, in Nova Scotia at the time, you had to pay tax on, uh, when you bought a, a used vehicle. Even in a private sale, you took the bill of sale in and, and you had to pay tax on it. And it was common practice for people to pay the full amount, but then to write out a bill of sale that would be a lesser amount. Well, here when I heard that, my heart sank because I had a check in my spirit. I can't do that. It, it wouldn't be right for me to say that I sold it for a different price than what I actually got. And so I, I told the gentleman, sorry, I, I, would like to, I would like to put the full amount on the bill of sale. And I recall this, because it happened a long time ago, I think it was on the phone when he said to me, what are you, one of those Christians? And I don't remember exactly how I responded, but I do remember that we lost the sale of the truck. At least on that particular sale. Eventually we did sell it and we bought a little Mazda. We have a little Mazda now, funny, anyway. I can hardly call that, what happened in that story, persecution. But something negative did happen because we chose to stand for what we believe to be the right thing. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've been saying throughout this series that the Beatitudes are not a list of requirements that Jesus has for entrance into his kingdom. Do this, 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 and this, and then you'll be worthy to enter my kingdom. They're not that. If that was the case with this Beatitude, Jesus would be saying, the way to get into my kingdom is to deliberately find yourself in a place of mistreatment. Go out there and get persecuted, and then you'll be worthy to follow me. He's not saying that. He'd be sanctioning torture or even martyrdom. He's not doing that. And if Jesus was saying that the Beatitudes, secondly, are ethical demands for how people should live in order, or once they are even in his kingdom... That this is how you carry yourself and you must live way, this way. This is, this is our, our ethical checklist, if you will. Then that means with this beatitude that Jesus would be encouraging 
our pursuit of persecution. Asceticism, I think some people call that, where we deliberately put ourselves in positions of pain at the hands of others. That would be masochistic to do that. And Jesus is not saying that. He would be saying it if these are ethical demands, but that's not what we've been saying. This is a message of comfort, these Beatitudes, for those who have suffered undeserved persecution, as if persecution is ever deserved. Sometimes we suffer due to our own poor decisions, our own folly, but persecution is never acceptable. Webster defines it as this, defines the verb persecute as follows, to harass or punish in a manner designed to injure, grieve, or afflict. And then it says specifically, to cause to suffer because of belief, to persecute. That should never happen to anyone. It shouldn't. People should never be persecuted for what they believe. People should never be persecuted for who they are. But it does happen in this world. It happens sometimes when you stand up for doing the right thing or when you stand up for somebody else. And Jesus says, when you do that, when that kind of persecution does happen and you stand up, for that person, or even when it happens to yourself, he says, you're blessed when that happens to you. Yours is the kingdom. He doesn't say yours will be the kingdom. He says the kingdom is yours right now. You belong in the kingdom. And this brings us to an interesting point in our study of the Beatitudes. As we now come near the end of it, we've got one more next week that uh, Calvin Weiss is going to bring to us. It follows on the heels of, of, of verse 10. But if you look back to, to verse 3, you see that the beginning Beatitude has the same promise connected to it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, because for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, present tense. In biblical studies, this technique, if you will, is called an inclusio, where something is said at the beginning, something is said at the end or near the end, and it's the same thing. It's like bookends. And when you have bookends, biblically speaking, in our studies, these, this similar saying is an interpretive clue to what happened in the middle. So what happened in the middle? All of the Beatitudes in the middle have the promise in future. Blessed are the, for they will. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. All future tense. And yet, the bookends tell us that the kingdom is present right now. So what is it? Yes, the answer is yes, it is now, and it's coming too, and it's telling us that all of these beatitudes have something to do with the kingdom of heaven, something to do with whose the kingdom of heaven is. It's powerful when you look at it that way. Those who are persecuted will likely be those who are poor in spirit. 
If you have been persecuted or put down because of, you, because of doing the right thing, if, if you have become uh, someone who has received this negativity over time, and maybe even not so long of a time, you become one who is poor in spirit, a beleaguered person, somebody who might be downtrodden. And Jesus looks at you, whether you're in that first state or the last state, and says, the kingdom belongs to you right now. You're blessed. You belong. I want you with me. It's powerful. Far from being passive, this beatitude assumes that doing good characterizes those who follow Jesus. Doing good sometimes gets us into trouble. If you pay attention to the news over these last couple of years, whistleblowers have been in the news a fair bit. I did a little bit of reading this week on whistleblowers, those who point something out in a company that isn't right. It can happen in big companies or smaller ones. We usually hear about the bigger ones, even government. It usually doesn't go well for the whistleblower. In the reading, most whistleblowers end up losing their job or end up not getting their promotion. It happens in other situations too when we stand up for what is right. Sometimes we don't get that promotion. Or if you stand up and say in a conversation, we shouldn't be talking about so-and-so like that. All of a sudden, maybe you're feeling on the outside of the group, not the inside. Or if you feel like you need to say something about a family situation that nobody else wants to say, and then you're the one who says it, and all of a sudden, you're on the outside. You feel this distance that happens because you stood up for what you believe to be right. And this is your conviction. Somebody else might think right is different, but you act upon your conviction. This beatitude, far from being passive, assumes that doing good characterizes the follower of Jesus. And if we are going to be People who do good, not do-gooders. There's something very different about a do-gooder than someone who does good. I think Jesus is saying we can expect that some hard things might come our way. We can expect, perhaps, that some mistreatment might befall us. This beatitude also implies that in the face of mistreatment, those who are doing good won't stop doing it. They won't stop doing good by retaliating. If we respond in kind, if we seek vengeance, even when we're mistreated, then we stop doing good and we enter into the escalation cycle. Scandretti in his book on the Beatitudes, calls what we're talking about now the way of surrender. The way of surrender. And he draws upon how Jesus responded when he was mistreated. Religious leaders of the day did not like Jesus. Jesus spoke truth. He spoke truth to power. And they wanted to get rid of him. But he held his ground, not in a retaliatory way, but in a way that 
kept on doing good and standing for right and truth and for those who were downtrodden and beat down by that religious elite in the day. He would not be bullied by them. He stood with those who were. This ultimately got Jesus killed. And if we stay with the story, we see that Judas, one of his followers, turned him over. And there in the garden when Jesus was arrested, did he retaliate? I think it's Matthew's gospel that tells us that Peter tried to retaliate. Whipped out that sword that he had and cut the high priest's servant's ear right off. Some would say he missed because he was going for a bigger blow. Jesus said, no, don't retaliate. That's not my kind of kingdom. And he was arrested. Instead of pushing back, he went like this. Take me. And he was put on trial and falsely accused. How did he respond in that trial? The Gospels tell us that he kept silent. When he talked with Pilate in the Gospel of John, he spoke truth even there, but it was not retaliatory. It was not vengeance-seeking. And then along the way, Peter, his closest disciple, betrays him or uh, denies him, saying, I don't even know the man. And we know the rest of the story. After the glorious resurrection of Jesus and they're having breakfast on the beach there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, what does Jesus do with Peter? He talks with him and he reinstates him. There was none of this, Peter, you shouldn't have done that. He just recommissioned Peter and said, go, I commission you to serve and feed my sheep, feed my people, tell the good news about me. No retaliation in Jesus. Jesus lived the way of surrender. When have you chosen to stand up for the right thing? When and how have you chosen to stand up for somebody else who was downtrodden or being taken advantage of? When have you been mistreated for doing the right thing? This beatitude tells us that Jesus sees you and he loves you. He's for you and you belong in the kingdom when that's your story. It's a welcoming message. He's not sending us out to go out and be persecuted, but he knows this world and he knows that when good is put out there, especially in the face of evil, it creates sparks. So when that persecution happens, Jesus says, be comforted, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Now we're all on a continuum with this. Maybe you're like me and when something even small happens that mistreats you like a motorcycle driving too close to your bike, you have this retaliatory thought that comes to your mind, you realize, oh yes, that wasn't very becoming of one who has chosen to live the way of surrender now, is it, Lord? And so we're processing along the way, aren't we? We certainly are. But the way of surrender is our goal. That's our desire to live that way. Listen, Jesus modeled the way of surrender for us. But he did more than that. If we're truly going to live the way of surrender... 
He showed us by being more than a model how to do it. You see, he's not just our model. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. We don't just take good lessons from him. We worship him. And so for us to truly enter the way of surrender, we begin by surrendering to him. The first step on the way of surrender is giving our allegiance to Jesus. Living in allegiance to Jesus is a way of surrender. If you give allegiance to a king, you surrender your will to that king and you say, my will is yours. Your wish is my command. We surrender to him. That's the gospel, friends. That's the beginning of the gospel. When we say yes to him, and when we let him do for us what we can't do for ourselves, there's nothing in the gospel that says, go and save yourself. The New Testament is all about us realizing that we can't save ourselves, and so we surrender to him. And then we begin this process of living in response to him, where we start to do good out of response to who Jesus is. And then all of a sudden we'll bump up to the systems and structures of this world that don't always like those who do good and stand up for right. And having surrendered to Jesus, we now have some internal strength that allows us to be people of surrender along the way, who no longer need to retaliate, who no longer need to have a defensive posture in life because we have him within us. We've already surrendered, so we don't need to make our case anymore. That's the way of surrender. That's the way to live in response to Jesus, not with retaliatory measures, but rather we choose nonviolence. And as Jesus said, we pray for our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray, bless, and do not curse. That's the way of Jesus, the way of surrender. May we live in that way.